and welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. For this episode, I invite you to come along with me to Alice Lloyd College in Pippa Passes, Kentucky, to hear a convocation address given by Afrolachian Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker. Frank X. Walker from Danville, Kentucky, is the former first African-American poet laureate of Kentucky. His groundbreaking first collection of poems published in 2000, Afrolatcha, helped to challenge the notion of a homogeneous, all-white literary landscape in Appalachia. Walker was a co-founder of the Afrolatchian Poets Group and coined the term Afrolatcha, which is now used to describe a multitude of mountain-centric creations, philosophies, and activities. Walker is currently a professor at the University of Kentucky and has many publications under his belt. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would please join me in welcoming Frank X. Walker. Afternoon. I'm not sure what you expect. Uh, I'm just going to read some poems. And I hope that you uh, remember at least one of them. A line or a word from At least one. The thing about readings for me, given the fact that I probably do somewhere between 100 and 150 readings a year. Uh, I've read to different audiences, different ages around the country, different facilities. The hardest place to ever read was in a what we would call a asylum. The easiest place to ever read was in a prison, because I knew the audience wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> but I'm always interested in trying to see if I can, can choose a group of poems that that give them the best chance of being received. So I've been peeping at you, and I don't have any well-dressed poems. You guys are, are dressed better than my poems, it seems. Uh, I'm reading some Kentucky poems. Uh, the thing about my topics is I generally have work that falls in one or two categories, uh, either poems that celebrate or investigate or interrogate Kentucky at every level, or poems that deal with history. And I'm going to try to read for both of those categories for you, give you a sense of, of what they sound like, how different they are, and hopefully they will feed what for me is the, is the best part, which is the Q&A to happen at the end. It's almost March, and if you live in Kentucky, uh, March is a, a particular kind of time of the year. I grew up in Daniel, Kentucky, a sports town, so basketball and football are, are very important to, to everybody. I remember being a, a young person uh, and wanted to get my name in the paper, but I realized that you had to score a touchdown or buckets. Uh, you couldn't do anything else. You couldn't make art or, or make straight A's and get in, in the local paper. Uh, you had to be an athlete. I want to share a poem with you called Death by Basketball that challenges the idea of what's important with our young people. The poem comes from a place that's based on the fact that a young man had gone to the NFL had been a millionaire for about three or four years, broke his leg, ended up losing his contract, and had to go out and find a real job. And when he got to the interview market, he found out that he could not read past the fifth grade level. He had a high school diploma and a college degree, and he could not read past the fifth grade level. His high school had won four state tournaments. His college had won three national championships. And he ended up suing his college and his high school for not giving him an education. 
Uh, and I always wrestled with the idea of whose fault was it? And it wasn't the teachers who passed him when he couldn't read. But I also understood that you know, there were classmates, there were family members, uh, there were people probably taking this test for him, uh, teachers letting him sleep in class. Uh, but ultimately, he was also at fault. So that's my way of, of making sure that I remind you that you always demand to be educated. Uh, there's a strange idea of who's in charge in the classroom, but the teachers, especially if you pay tuition, the teachers work for you. Doesn't mean you can be late, but think about it. This is called death by basketball. Before and after school, he stood on a milk crate, eyeballed the mirror, and only saw Wayne Turner, an All-American, at tournament time. A third grader, just off the bus, barely four feet off the ground, he dropped his books, sank a J from the top of the key, and heard the crowd roar. <coughs> Beat his man off the dribble with a breaking neck crossover, and slammed himself on the cover of Box of Bees. He was out there every night, under a street light, fighting through double picks, talking trash to imaginary body checks. You can't hold me, fool. Fake right. This is my planet. Drive left. Is the camera on? Reverse layup. That's butter, baby. Fish with a tray from downtown. Swish. I'm in the zone tonight. Who got next? Was a little lightning behind. Hands so small, the ball almost dribbled him. He formed his own layup line in the bluegrass. Wildcat jersey hanging like a summer dress on the court made ball from daily use. But instead of writing his spelling words, Inked the contract he could really read. Wrote big block letters to the NBA and Nike and Sprite. Scribbled superstar in cursive with fat red pencils and practiced his million dollar smile. Not his multiplication table. Think of how many chocolate milk you could buy with the all-star game appearance fee after recess. Another shooting. Another tragic death. Another little genius who would never test out of a dream that kills legitimate futures every night under streetlights, wherever these products are sold. And that poem has, it feels like there's a political slant towards the end, but the real question is, what's most important? Developing a young person intellectually or athletically? But there are places in the world where people get that confused, and they think it's okay if that young man is taller than everybody else, or faster or stronger, to not develop them intellectually. And it happens with young women too. So don't fall for that. I'm going to jump backwards to the same book that I'm reading from Afrolatia. One of the things that happened in 1991 for me is I was, I'd gone to a reading in Kentucky, in Lexington specifically, with the Opera House, and they had changed the title uh, from the great Appalachian writers to the great Kentucky writers when they invited Nikki Finney along to read. And I, I was curious about why they had to change the title. So I looked up in my dictionary the definition of Appalachian. And the dictionary definition in 1991 said, Appalachians were the white residents of the mountainous regions of Appalachia. And that struck me as a little odd because what do you call the people who are not white who also live in the same regions? I've been all over the region. I've been traveling as close to Hyman and Hazel Green 30 years ago uh, with Gertie Norman through these mountains. You know, I've been in Charleston and, and Huntington, and I knew people of color in the same space. I knew that Appalachia officially extended from southern New York State to northern 
Mississippi, including the city of Birmingham. Birmingham is where the bond of the full of the girls happened. I lived in Birmingham for two and a half years. So I knew that there were people of color in those spaces, but Appalachian didn't apply to them. So because I can't afford a therapist, I went home and wrote this poem. <laughs> it's called Appalachian. Thoroughbred racing and hee-haw are burdens of images for Kentucky sons venturing beyond the Mason-Dixon. Anywhere in Appalachia is about as far as we get from our house in the projects. Yet a mutual appreciation for fresh greens and cornbread and an almost heroic notion of family and porches makes us kinfolk somehow. But having never ridden bareback or side saddle, and being inexperienced at cutting, hanging, or chewing tobacco, yet still feeling complete and proud to say that some of the bluegrass is black, enough to know that being colored and all, the journey lost somewhere between the Dukes of Hazard and the Beverly Hillbillies. But if you think making shine from corn is as hard as Kentucky coal, imagine being an Appalachian poet. And that, that poem for me is part of, of my choice to defend Kentucky and, and who lives here. Because I'm from a very large family. I'm one of 11 kids. But I've been to places like Washington State on university campuses and had people ask me from the audience if other people of color lived in Kentucky. As if I could be the only one. <laughs> so usually I would just start counting for them, whether my mom and dad, my <laughs> brothers and sisters, and until they started laughing. But I understood the question came out of a space that was governed by television and mass media. When they watched TV, when they saw Dukes of Hazard and the Beverly Hills and Andy Griffith Show, all those programs suggested all those spaces that were rural and this part of the state and the country were 100% white. I mean, you never saw a person of color on those shows. So people believed that was the truth. It forced me to write a different poem called Kentucky. It actually is a poem about Kentucky African-American history. And I want you to listen to see if you recognize any of the famous names in this poem uh, that hopefully is part of your curriculum before you graduate from high school or college. And it's dedicated uh, to a man who wrote my favorite poem about Kentucky, uh, dedicated to James Steele, Ken Tuck. Ken Tuck, once bloody brown, hunting Eden for native tongues, apologetically eliminating buffalo for sustenance, not sport or profit or pleasure. Uncommonwealth, repopulated immigrants and freed men who discovered black lung was as indiscriminate as calluses and hunger. You remained north and south. Interstate highways, your crucifix, blessing yourself with 64 and I-75. You have derbied and dribbled yourself a place in the world that would not let you forget you corrupted basketball. Your cash crop causes cancer, and the run for the roses is only two minutes long. Ken, Tucky, beautiful, ugly cousin, I too am of these hills. My folks are cornrow tobacco, laid track, strip mines, worshiping whiskey from Harlem to Maysville, old Dunbar to Central. Our Whitney Youngs and May Street kids cut their teeth on bourbon balls. And though conspicuously absent for millionaires world, we have Isaac Murphy our way down the back stretch. Cassius played our names in cement. We are the amen in Church Hill Downs, the mint in the julep. We put the heat in the hot brown and gave it color. Indeed, some of the bluegrass 
is black. You guys still with me out there? All right. Uh, one more from this section, but it's conditional. This is the poem that demands accompaniment. So, is there anybody in the audience that knows the first verse to Amazing Grace? Could be willing to sing it from your seat. I know 
and I want them to leave stronger and smarter uh, and more able to, to do the things that they came to, to learn how to do. This first poem is called Teaching New Poets to Hunt. And it kind of meshes this idea of teaching people to hunt and teaching them to write poetry and where poems come from in the first place. So you can listen to those things if you can figure out how they interweave with each other. Teaching new poets to hunt. I invited them along, hoped they'd like the chase, knew they'd recognize the scent of irony, indecision, and isolation in their own backyards, knew they'd hunt down their private thoughts, obsessions, and unspoken fears one by one. I believed they could survive in the wild, would build warm fires and shelter from their own childhood memories, would pull ribs from their own breasts and forge new weapons and tools. I showed them how to track down game, downwind, how to not get burned from the fire in their lungs, how to wring in a wild thing's neck with their bare hands, how to always eat the liver first, to hold the quivering heart in their hands until the very last beat. I proposed that we display the carcasses and pelts here in our common space, that we not judge each other's efforts, but only be inspired by the body counts, by the ritual of spilling blood every day, or ink. Now, I look at them and nod my head with approval, proud to have encouraged the slaying of such beautiful, ugly things, well before they hunted us down and tried to kill us first. And that form really is about encouraging young writers to to write about the difficult things. You know, I, I suggest that I'm a poet because I couldn't afford a therapist, but there's some reality in that space. The things that, that make you uncomfortable, that are family secrets, that are challenged, that really are about the things that shape your character. You're always surprised at how many of those things are connected to other people. And I'm always pleased to share something and, and to find out that somebody has that connection. Uh, sometimes those things are, are not they're not happy things. There's a poem that I have a difficult time reading that's about cancer. I've had lost several ants to cancer, but I've never been in an audience anywhere where there wasn't another person there in the audience who hadn't lost somebody to cancer. And, and that's unfortunate that we live in a country like that, that the cancer rate is so high. But I'm always looking for those connections. I'll read one more from this section that's really about, it's a celebration poem for my sister and her own strength. Uh, and it takes a poem and her lazy husband. <laughs> and it's called the pre That's the word for the most strongly flavored of all tobaccos for my sister Wanda. The pre When her husband threw his back out the day before the big move, my sister grabbed the other end of the mattress and everything else I coaxed from the back of the truck with the dexterity of a tobacco cutter doing the work of two. Ignoring my caution, her fatigue, she reminded me that she was made of the old stuff, the same stuff as our mother, and almost all the warners born and raised in the Burley Fields of Washington County. Her nostrils flared, and I saw it burning slow. Her scowl, a celluloid filter, squinting to adjust her own tire and nicotine just like the night she stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mama, defiant, obstinate, declaring herself grown, too grown for any more whoopings refusing to duck or flinch each attempt to beat her back into a little girl's box. With that last slap struck something iron, her nostrils were the only evidence of the size of the bellow she held in check. Flat on her back, beneath 
undefended, flailing. She shot me a look that made me throw my arms around Mama's exhausted limbs and anemic tongue lashing, fall backwards, beg her to stop and pretend I was holding the victor. There was a point in everybody's development where uh, it's time to leave the nest. And my mom always said that, you know, when you think you're a man or a woman, it's time to go. Until then, it was her house. My father was a different kind of spirit. Uh, very quiet. My parents were divorced when I was very early in age. And I spent time with my father in a real way by the time I was a teenager. And we always had a difficult time having a conversation because he didn't use real words. If he asked me anything, he would just grunt or, or mumble. You know, you say, you know, Daddy, you know, want to get something to eat? So that's yes. I'm waiting for a real word. It turned out that he didn't ever use real words. And a strange thing happened for us in our kind of development over the years. I was at a funeral, and we were burying his brother. And I got there a little bit late, and he was standing in the parking lot. He was smoking a cigarette. He's a chain smoker, even today. And the only time you see him in a suit is at funerals. So he's got one suit, and he had this god-awful, ugly white tie on. And the way he had it tied, the fat part was shorter than the skinny part. So guys say, you know, you understand, that's incorrect. And it was only about this long. <laughs> so I walked up to him, and I just took his tie loose from him and then tried to retie it. And if you haven't done that, you have to pretend like it's your own neck and find your space, and then, you know, you, you must remember to take over. But inside that space, I realized that my father and I didn't touch. We weren't used to being that close to each other. And suddenly I was uncomfortable, and I realized so is he. So this poem comes out of that space. It's called Burying Albatross. In the parking lot behind the funeral home, my eyes settle on the bulky white noose my father has lost a wrestling match to. Though he is not convinced Windsor not know how can plant tobacco or drive a nail true, he concedes his flawed results, abides my desire to fix it. Calling up knowledge passed to me from a book, I execute the maneuvers with full precision and imagine I'm creasing and folding a Japanese paper swine. He stares at my knuckles, smiling, perhaps seeing his own hands, stuck on a high ceiling or replacing a worn out alternator. Standing close enough to kiss, we almost touch and pretend the very other heavy things sewn together like the opposite ends of the fabric in my hands. Before I let him go, all the sage advice and words of encouragement that never breathed air between us spread a silent wing, then slide through a perfect slip knot home. So hopefully you can hear some love in there for, uh, for that gentleman. One of the things about uh, mentioning uh, being a social justice person, that includes environmental justice too. So this poem, you may recognize, uh, it's called Nyctophobia. I think it speaks for itself. Nyctophobia. And that means fear of the dark. They first came to satisfy a sense of adventure, traveled for miles to climb her bountiful breasts, recording their discoveries in comic strips and murder ballads, declaring mountain culture a regional sideshow attraction. Now they are back with drag lines and dozers, performing dime store mastectomies to cure their fear of the dark, removing her tops, 
peeling brown skin back, harvesting her ovaries, silencing her loud beauty, poisoning her underground dreams just to turn on our lights. And one more basketball poem. If you're a UK fan, uh, you might not, might not have ever been in Rubber Arena uh, and might want to go. The first time I got a chance to go to Rubber Arena to a basketball game, I was given a ticket by a faculty member, and I ended up sitting in, the, in this section with a group of, I would call them basketball snobs, because they didn't stand up, you know, they didn't clap, they didn't really get into the game unless they were, the team was losing or they wanted to yell the referees. And they seemed very uncomfortable with the idea that I was in that section. You, know, for, you can imagine what reasons that might be. Um, it's called reserve seating. This is the polite section. Pure buttermilk until I arrive. A fallen tree away from the eruption zone. Close enough to see beads of sweat, but far enough away not to get any on them. In these seats, nobody stands or yells or screams at the referees. As I squeeze through the aisle, they all check their tickets as if needed to confirm that these are not the cheap seats. They still glance sideways, wait for the explanation I refuse to give. I pretend disinterest. Pretend I don't hear when they forget they aren't alone. Pretend I don't notice how they glare at the black bodies on the other team, or how quiet and mean they get when their boys aren't so in spite of that, I really love basketball, and I doubt her a UK fan. Uh, but let me close with some history poems. You guys ever heard of Mega Evers? Anybody raise your hand if you've heard of Mega Evers? Okay, this is why I read these poems, because three people raised their hand, and they were at least my age and older. You heard of civil rights era? Raise your hand. All right, you heard of assassinations. You probably heard that the famous assassinations include Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, JFK, maybe Robert F. Kennedy. If you had got a full account of history, the first name on that list would be Mega Evers, who was assassinated in 1961 uh, by an assassin across the street from his house, uh, hiding in honeysuckle bushes, uh, who shot him with a rifle. And Mega's offense was registering people to vote in Jackson, Mississippi. He just wanted people to vote, uh, but was considered a threat by people who didn't want people like Mega to vote. This book called Turn Me Loose, Young Ghost of Mega Everest tries to tell Mega's story without Mega even speaking a word. Uh, the people who tell the story are primarily the assassin, Byron Beckwith, the assassin's wives, first wife Wilma and Thelma David Beckwith, uh, and the widow of Mega Everest, Merle Everest. I'm going to read just three points in this section give you a sense of what these historical poems sound like in somebody else's voice. One of the things that the assassin did was brag about having killed Mega Evers. Uh, he was very proud of it. There were three trials to find him guilty. It took a third trial and almost 50 years before he was found guilty. By the time he was found guilty, he was an 80-plus-year-old man. And while he was alive, he bragged about killing Mega being no more difficult than the pain women endure when they give birth to children. So imagine somebody comparing taking a life with giving life. Byron Lillibeck, after birth. Like them, a man can conceive an idea, an event, a moment so clearly he can name it even before it breathes. 
carry a thing around inside for only so long, and no matter how small it starts, it can swell and get so heavy, our backs hurt, and we can't find comfort enough to sleep at night. All we can think about is the end and the relief that waits. When it was finally time, it was painless. It was the most natural thing I'd ever done. I just closed my eyes and squeezed, then opened them, and there he was, just laying there, still covered with blood, but already trying to crawl. I must admit, like any proud parent, I was afraid at first, afraid he'd live, afraid he'd die too soon. Funny how life and death is a whole lot of pushing and pulling, holding and seeking breath. A whole world turned upside down until somebody screams. That's the voice of the assassin. Uh, he's the primary speaker in this collection. His next one is in the voice of his first wife, Wilma. And during the research, it was, it was difficult trying to appreciate the fact that if he was a monster, what did it say about her? And the fact that she had divorced him once and left him a second time meant that, you know, there was a line in the sand that she would not cross. So I did not decide that she was a monster, but she loved her husband. So this is called Fireproof in the voice of Willie David Becker. He would come home from evening rallies and secret meetings, so in love with me, I could never see nothing wrong with what he did with his hands. I just pretended I didn't know what gunpowder smelled like or why he kept his rifle so clean. If he walked through the door and said, Willie, burn these clothes. I piled them on the coals and stared at the fire. I listened to the music twixt the crackle and calm as we danced. And while the ashes gathered around their own kind in the bottom of the grave, I'd watch the embers blow like our bedroom did. Now, I ain't saying that he was right or wrong. He often confused hatred with desire. But if you had never set a man on fire, felt him explode inside you and die in your arms, honey, you got no idea what I'm talking about. Two more, one from the voice of the widow, Merle Uppers, uh, who spent most of her adult life after the assassination, you know, trying to recover. She was so traumatized. She was actually pregnant at the time of the assassination and ended up having a miscarriage because of that, that trauma. She was left with three small kids. This is a poem that imagines what she would have to say to those women, to the wives of the assassin. It's called sorority meeting. My faith urges me to love you. My stomach begs me to not. All I know is that day made us sisters somehow. After long nervous nights and trials on end, we are bound together in this unholy sorority of misery. I think about you every time I run my hands across the echoes in the hollows of my sheets. They seem loudest just before I wake. I open my eyes every morning, half expecting Mega to be there. Then I think about you. Your eyes always snatch me back. Your eyes won't let me forget. We are sorority sisters now, with a gut-wrenching country ballad for a sweetheart song, tired funeral, and courtroom clothes with colors, and secrets we would take to our graves. I was forced to sleep nights after night after night with a ghost. You chose to sleep with a killer. We all pledged our love, crossed our hearts, and swallowed oaths before being initiated with the bullets. And the last one for this section I'll read is a poem in the imagined voice of the bullet. And the details are taken straight from the court transcripts that describe the path of the bullet. And if you listen to the details, you'll hear how the bullet traveled through Megan's body and into the house of where it landed in the kitchen. It's called one-third of 180 grams of lead, which is what the bullet fragment weighed when they 
bullets speaking. Both of them were history, even before one pulled the trigger. Before I rocketed through the smoking barrel hidden in the honeysuckle, before I tore through a man's back, shattered his family, a window, and tore through an inner wall, before I bounced off a refrigerator and a coffee pot, before I landed at my destiny point in history next to a watermelon. What was cruel was the irony, not the melody, not the man falling in slow motion, but the man squinting through the crosshairs, reducing the justice system to a small circle, praying that he not miss, then sending me to deliver a message, as if the woman screaming in the dark or the children crying at her feet could ever believe a bullet was small enough to hate. So those forms are a little more difficult, but they're about history. And I want to end with some more history poems that are very Kentucky-centric. Hopefully you heard of Isaac Murphy. I used the word Isaac Murphy in the previous poem from Appalachia, uh, but I used his name as a verb, and I said Isaac Murphy down the backstretch. Isaac Murphy still today is the most successful jockey ever. He won 44% of every race he's ever in. 44%. That's first place. That's not even counting second and third. Uh, he made so much money as a jockey that he lived in downtown Lexington in a mansion just after slavery, which is unheard of. He traveled around the country uh, with a valet and private cars, and he was so good that in some, you know, he raced in Chicago once, and he won all six races that day in Chicago. But one of the things about him that people didn't appreciate or understand is he never used the spurs or whips to make his horse go faster. He said he just talked to the horse. You know, I don't know what you, how much you know about horses. That's a lot of, of, of talking to do to move a thousand pounds of animal down the road. <laughs> but one of the things I, I discovered in the research is how important the relationship between a horse and a rider is by watching the groomsmen at Churchill Downs and, and at Keeneland. If you ever have a chance to be in Lexington or Louisville, uh, take a visit to the track before sunrise. Go to about 5 a.m. and you can watch them work their horses out. You might not see them, but you can hear them in the dark if it's not, if it's so much fog. And it sounds like a, an engine coming down the track. You can hear the, the hooves, but you can also hear their lungs expanding and, and their breath forcing itself out the, their nose. I'm going to read a few poems from this section that tries to characterize Isaac Murphy, at least his approach in his relationship with horses. This first one is called Groom. It just tries to capture that relationship where, you know, they know him so well he can just touch them to get them to co cooperate. Groom, Isaac Murphy speaking. The first time I put my hands on a horse, I pretend like I'm touching a woman or brushing my mama's hair. I make sure none of the weight I might be carrying around is riding with me. Before I step foot in the stall, I might even stop gather myself in the quiet morning air, close my eyes and picture my Lucy sleeping or mama peeling apples. It's a lot like prayer, only I ain't asking for nothing but for God to lift my burdens right off my hands so that my touch is like a mother's kiss, like a baptism even. I just want the horse to know my heart is clean, to feel all my respect, no fear and nothing of the heaviness or darkness that follow even good men around like a tail do the man. That's him talking about the love of horses. One thing about that occupation is that the horse is a thousand pounds, a runaway freight train. The jockeys hardly weigh anything. You know, they're less than five foot tall, maybe 116, 110 pounds. And a lot of people look at jockeys and don't, don't think they're athletes. 
uh, but they have really strong arms and legs. So I'm going to read a poem that really tries to celebrate how hard to do what they do is. It's called More Than Luck. It's the voice of Isaac Murphy. I don't pretend to make it sound easy because it's not. It takes strength, brains, and courage, lightning reflexes, and a mountain of confidence. It takes a jockey's whole body, especially his arms and legs, to guide that runaway train. Horses have powerful legs, but no muscles below the knees. So they need great feet, enough training to know the difference between running free with the herd and getting the nose across the finish line first. You've got to be patient and skilled to slip through the windows and doors that blink open during a race. But it don't hurt if your horse has already made up his mind to win before you ask permission to climb aboard. When I'm up there dodging mud and sprinting toward the finish line, I don't think about winning. Don't think the horse does either. Sometimes I can't even hear the crowd yelling at me hard and loud for leading my mount past our first or second choice. I never consider how easy it is to fall out of the saddle. How trying to dodge the thunder and lightning of the thoroughbred's hooves would be like tiptoeing through a cotton gin. When a thousand pounds of horse is on the other end, your rib cage is just a bird nest. Your head no safer than a watermelon kissing a knife. And I'll close with a poem from this collection. Actually, the last poem in here comes out of a tradition of celebrating heroes. It's called a Praise Song. And it's a praise song for Isaac Murphy. It's called a Praise Song. And hopefully you'll hear what praise songs are intended to do. Praise Song. Traveling this is between African Cemetery Number 2 and the Kentucky Horse Park. Between the straw line stables at Churchill Downs and the view pavilion's road. Between our racist history and our proud past. I offer these words, this elegy, this praise song for Isaac, for every master teacher, blessed with brilliant students, for Jimmy Wingfield and William Walker, Pat Day and Calvin Burrell, Eddie Arcaro and Angel Cordero Jr., for every jockey hypnotized by the speed, power, and the music of racing, for every trainer, groom, hot walker, stable hand who palmed a brush, carried a bucket, or lifted a shovel, for every derby day hero generous enough to take a jockey along for the ride, for every yearling dreaming of a garland of roses for every also ran. I recommit this husband to his wife, this son, to his mother, this student, to his teacher. I offer all of them to each of us. I dedicate this ride to a man whose life's work was a blueprint for anyone, black, white, or brown, hoping to build something better, hoping to fulfill their own potential, to use all their gifts and blessings in an honorable way. Isaac Murphy's life teaches us how to honor our parents, how to love full speed, how to outrun prejudice and oppression. I dedicate this ride to America and Kentucky's son, to a legacy worthy of a star on the walk, a boulevard named in his honor, this book. Wrap your arms around this story. Close your eyes. Feel the wind whispering in your ears. Grab the reins of any and everything that makes your heart race. Find your purpose. Find your purpose. And hold on. Thank you. Questions? Comments? Uh, when did I start writing? I started writing kindergarten, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I just started writing poetry in high school. That's not true. I wrote one poem in middle school, and then I vowed to never write again. Because a lot of us get sucked into this. It was Valentine's Day. <laughs> I should
showed up at school with my first poem ever and a big bar of chocolate. And I walked up to Delphi Barbiston and gave her both of them and just stood there. You know, like I was going to be rewarded with a kiss, I suppose. She took the poem, looked at it, she took the candy bar, then turned and gave it to her boyfriend. Somehow I'd missed all of that. <laughs> so I vowed never to write again. So it was years later, uh, as a sophomore at Denver High School, I took a creative writing class and, and really, really enjoyed it. I wrote my first short story. Uh, we had a, a journal in high school called the, uh, the Lighthouse, and I had about a half dozen poems published in it, my first publishing. But I didn't think about it as a, as a career opportunity or even a possible profession uh, until I was a college student. I changed my major the third time and finally found something that, that really fit for me that I was passionate about. But the writing started earlier. Being serious about writing, which is more important, uh, didn't happen to the high school. And that's early enough. And even then, they weren't good poems, you know. But they were poems, you know. Uh, it's hard to mess up a high school. I'm one of those strange people who, even as a writer, claim influences outside my supposed limited genre. Uh, my biggest influences were two musicians. I would say Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder early on. You know, I came from a generation where protest music was not any different from music people dance to. Most of you are too young to appreciate the power of a song like uh, What's Going On. Uh, and that song was a, was a ballad and people danced to it. But at the same time, it was a song that questioned America's involvement in the Vietnam War and all the bodies coming home, uh, what it was doing to the communities. Be able to do that and still make a love song in the same space, to be able to, to not let go of your politics, and then have something that was useful or utilitarian uh, was very important to me. And Stevie Wonder did, did even better, and he's still doing it. And Marvin Gaye's been dead for a long time. Uh, and he's from Kentucky, Lexington specifically. But those kinds of you know, musicians, visual artists even, I'm also a painter and a wood sculptor and photographer. I'm trained as a fiction writer. Hopefully my, next, my first novel comes out next year. Uh, but I've had more success as a poet. And for those who are looking to, to publish, it's easier than ever in the world to get published because if you have computer access, you can publish online. Uh, you can self-publish. You can go to a vanity press. You can have print-on-demand, which means that a company does that for you. You can sell one copy or one million, and then you're automatically an author. It was harder when I was younger, you know, mostly because everybody didn't have computers. You know, you know, my first book was written on a typewriter. Some of you have no idea what a typewriter is. <laughs> Something in the antique store, right? But the book I'm writing right now, I'm writing on an iPad Pro, which shows you how far that technology has changed. It's a beautiful tool and instrument. Uh, the only difference is that there won't be a big stack of, of each version of that poem to just be that one final thing, because I'm editing right in the software right in the package, so it'd just be one document. Where in the old days, when I finished the book, on my desk there'd be a two-inch tall pile of paper from all the, the rewrites uh, and the versions that I struggled through. You know, I've heard poets claim to get a great idea and write a perfect poem the first time. I don't believe it. I don't think it's possible. I think most you can do is, is get the energy correct or the tone correct the first time. But a poem can always be better if it has words in it. Uh, to find the right words in the right order is what a lot of famous poets say, make a poem a poem. But, you know, it takes a lot of respect to get it right. Uh, but the craft of poetry is harder than the inspiration. 
thing about writing fiction is you have to hold more stuff in your head. Like, I can write a poem on the way back to Lexington today, but I can't write a chapter in the book or a page in the book. I can think about a book. A book is so much more complex, and so many other speakers are present, and there's so much other stuff happening that for me, there's a difference between looking at a photograph and looking at a movie. In a photograph, there's no soundtrack. You know, there may be a special lighting, but the lighting doesn't change. It's just what you see. But you know, you don't have to worry about setting, the costuming, those other ten art forms that happen on the film in a photograph versus a poem and a big piece of prose. Uh, so it's like that. But I tend to favor poems that are about my family. I have a, a poem about my daughter when she turned 13 and how embarrassed we both were. My daughter, my daughter turned 13 when she was 11 and 12. She had been a fan of hip-hop, which meant that she wore baseball caps and great t-shirts. But you young ladies know what happens at 11, 12, and 13, right? But if you got a big baggy shirt on, you might miss that. So she lived with her mother. I went to pick her up on her 13th birthday, and she came out of the house in a dress. I don't mean a dress. I mean a dress, right? And she had breasts, like she's supposed to have. But I never, you know, I never paid attention. In those three years, under a big heavy T-shirt, she had gone from zero, you know, to a C cup. Uh, and so I was like, you know, where did you get those? You know, she was embarrassed, and I was embarrassed. So we spent the whole day just kind of doing that. So I wrote a poem about that. So that's that's my favorite poem. To celebrate, you know, that kind of righteous passage and remind fathers to pay attention better and, and young ladies to give their fathers a break. Uh, sometimes you just don't pay attention in that transition from child to, to woman or man. After the convocation, Walker and I sat down for a quick talk during his reception. The room was noisy, but the conversation was rich. Walker discussed what Appalachia is whether or not we should remain in a region that seems full of hardship, and if we can make a career and impact with the arts and remain in the mountains. I don't know that I ever respected the, the definition that I inherited. Because just, I mean, using the, the term Afrolatch and then trying to push against individuals' attitudes that there was no such place, People really seem married to those geographical boundaries. Uh, so I think class makes, makes sense, you know, and experience, you know, given that those artificial boundaries were based on, you know, socioeconomic standards anyway. But unfortunately, when, when they were drawn those boundaries, they just ignored communities of color unless they were staunchly inside the region, like, you know, Harlan, Kentucky. Now, my family's county is actually at the very edge of Appalachia, you know, officially, at the very edge. I mean, the Dix River separates them, you know, from being officially Appalachian. Uh, but I would say that their experience, their cultural experience, their value system, music, foods, storytelling, literature, I mean, interests, I mean, they all say something different. Um, so, you know, I, I would say that I would prefer a non geographically limited definition of the space, which also allow people to, to live outside the region and still claim the space, which I think is important because there are all those cities of out-migrants. You know, if you look at Cincinnati, they have one of the largest communities of, of, of Appalachian 
former residents, but they still are involved in things culturally. You know, the cultural centers there, the activities, the, the family units are all still distinctly Appalachian. But to say they can't be Appalachian because they live in Cincinnati is ridiculous. And I would say that, you know, that, that applies to, you know, a lot of the East Coast, uh, you know, in Detroit and Cleveland, uh, Atlanta, you know, uh, you know, Nashville even, you know, not just Knoxville and Chattanooga, but the, to expand that. Because people left to find work. It didn't mean, it did not mean they left their families or they separated themselves ideologically from their families or that they stopped, you know, believing in or celebrating where they were from because they moved two miles or 20 or, or 100. So I, I support that notion that it's not about a geographical limitation. Um, it's about a cultural space. Arts and literature is Kentucky's greatest strength and probably one of the most undertold stories, you know, under-celebrated, under-appreciated. Unfortunately, it's clear that there's a higher appreciation for Kentucky writers outside the state than inside the state. I've only been to a couple of schools, public schools, public high schools in the state who teach Kentucky writers. I can name at least 50 schools that teach Kentucky writers outside Kentucky. I think it's unfortunate. I think that's also part of, the, part of what happens that allows kids to, to not feel good about the state because they think everything good comes from somewhere else. So if their space is not being celebrated, why should they celebrate it? You know, but it starts with the curriculum, I think. And I, I can't separate arts and letters. I think of poetry as art. You know, I think of you know, those young people in the same space. I think about the fact that Kentucky, with Governor's School for the Arts and the Governor's Scholars, we have the largest governor's program in the country, and people don't even know that is the case. Even the Governor's Scholars program have arts elements of it. You know, so if you're interested in the arts, you know, and you're trying to not just not get out, but to find a way to support yourself, to support your artistic development, to look for ways, real ways to do it as an adult. You know, I think those are great models because the, most of the faculty are also artists. You know, we're teaching artists, and people who are part of the, those systems tend to be around a long time. You know, I used to work with the Governor's School of the Arts, and now I'm a fundraiser, and I visit once a year in the summer, you know, just to be a visiting artist because I'm so married to the program and I, and I believe in what it does. And I met a student here today who introduced himself as a member of the 2013 Governor's School for the Arts class in creative writing, and they're very proud of that. And they're everywhere. It's an easy answer for me because I've tried to leave Kentucky three times and I always come back. I get pulled back, you know, and I, but I want to be here. Somebody's going to do it. You know, somebody needs to tell those stories. It needs to be told correctly. If somebody else tells it, they probably won't get it right. You know, we've, we've been victims of that so many other times. So we need to teach our kids to tell their stories and tell our stories and, you know, to give them the highest skill level. Because, you know, with all the new technology, you know, the world is shrinking. So you can be grounded here and have access to every place else. You know, they can improve computer access and, and, and the bandwidth so that everybody has equal access to everything available in, in, in the World Wide Web in that space. I think that the sense of isolation, you know, might you know, back off a little bit. The advantage to, to being from here and leaving is, I think, leaving here, you really appreciate how beautiful it is here. Uh, and leaving Kentucky in general, people think, you know, I talk to students all the time who can't wait to get the hell out of Kentucky. And then they come straight back because they go somewhere else. They go to New York City and find out that all the artists 
our waiting tables. All the actors are waitresses and, and wait staff, and, and everybody's an actor. And so it, it means less to them after the, you know, the, the, the shine gets a little dull, and then suddenly they start realizing they could come back here and be a, a big fish in a small pond versus you know, a little fish in a great big pond. So it depends on what their personal dreams are. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say in general to go or stay. I would say, what is it you're passionate about? Connect yourself with a space that will allow you to be the best you could be in that thing. Ideally, go somewhere you, where education is free, where you can get a scholarship. It's always going to be cheaper in state than out of state. You know, our degrees in Kentucky can be cashed in anywhere else in the, in the world. You know, so you don't, it's, it's not unvalued if it's a Kentucky degree or certificate. In fact, it may be easier to get an undergraduate degree and then go to a graduate program somewhere else, you know, depending on what you want to do if you need a graduate program somewhere else. But, and I think that if we could do a better job selling our excellence and fight this idea that if it's ours, it's mediocre, or if it's local, it's not as good as it is in Lexington or Louisville. There are a few programs in the world that can compete with Apple Shop, you know, with Kentucky writers in general. I mean, the quality of work that's come out of this, this region uh, is legendary, except to the kids who live in the region who are like, eh, they never heard it growing up, you know. Their teachers aren't saying, you know, you know who James still is, you know, Gurney Norman and Shelby. I mean, somebody has to be there, you know, ringing that bell, uh, celebrating those names and that culture and that literature as early as possible in the classroom. It can't be, you know, one day for an hour when they're in college and I've already made up the mind to leave. It should happen at least in high school, ideally in middle school. But that's just my two cents. What do I know? I'm a poet. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a Kentucky writer, first of all, and I, I'm connected to this amazing heritage of, of literature that comes out of the state. And I feel like my contribution is reminding people how diverse the history and literature of the region is. A lot of people still think Kentucky is a homogeneous space, that it's 100% white, that there aren't black people here. And if they do associate people of color with the region, then they don't think there are people of color here. And if they are, it just happened. They don't know about William Wells Brown. They don't know about you know, George Wolfe. They don't know about you know, all these other wonderful writers of color who've, who've been here, who are historically significant, dating back to the Harlem Renaissance era. Black people in Eastern Kentucky writing poetry, being published as part of Harlem Renaissance in New York and, and Chicago as part of a national conversation. People are always shocked that that's part of our, you know, that's part of our heritage. But the problem is people don't know. You know so it makes my work easy on, on one hand because it's not a lot of competition for what I have to offer, but it also makes my work hard because it means I can't take a break. I mean, because this story needs to be repeated over and over and over again. Uh, the thing, look at a program like the video, Co Black Voices, that is now almost 10 years old, that has been in circulation and on KET every February for 10 years. I would say part of it is because it's good, but the other part is there's not anything else telling that story. And at least they're trying to, to feel that niche. We need, we need more people to tell. We need 10 Crystal Wilkinson. Maybe only two Frank Walkers. That, that would be too much to have 10. And that's part of why I teach. If I get hold of a young person who really is, is talented and gifted and interested and passionate about writing, you know, I don't let go of them. You know, I'm writing letters of recommendation through their publishing successes you know, into graduate school. And if I can't get them to UK to be in my classroom, I'm making sure they go somewhere. Then trying to get them in print and known and give them a chance to read and 
part of what we did with the Appalachian Poets is find young writers and support them long enough for them to be able to support themselves, at least mentally and emotionally as a writer and an artist. Because we know that I pay my rent by teaching, you know, not by writing. And I don't know that anybody in Kentucky uh, can claim, other than Georgia Alliance, that they, for most of their life, uh, they've been a full-time writer and publisher and make their life as a writer. And, and I envy that, but of course she's got like 50 books out. Uh, thank you guys for the great audience. Appreciate you. This has been Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, here in downtown Wattsburg. We want to give a special thanks to Alice Lloyd College and Frank X. Walker for their contribution to this episode. And from all of us here at WMMT, we would like to thank you for listening.